0: I'm sorry. Some of the most sobering and sad chapters in the entire Bible are in front of us this morning. Second Samuel 11 and 12, they're familiar chapters to many of us because they typically are the ones that are highlighted when we think about the life of David, his sin with the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and her subsequent pregnancy, the confrontation by the prophet Nathan, David's eventual repentance, but the consequences that come to his kingdom as a result of his sin. As we've seen the last several weeks in 2nd Samuel starting at chapter 8, things have been looking up for David. As readers, we would be expecting his kingdom to continue to grow and expand and experience great blessing and live happily ever after. But we've known, if we've been paying attention, and I've pointed out along the way in 2 Samuel, that there have been this sort of seeds of David's coming fall already present, haven't there? As David has been accumulating to himself more and more women into his harem, so to speak, in his kingdom, marrying and marrying and marrying and marrying and adding wives and adding wives. His sexual sin has been present all along. So when we come to 2 Samuel 11, we're not entirely surprised by what happened, even though the gravity of it sometimes shocks us. But the consequences of what happens here in these two chapters in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 are going to ripple throughout the rest of the book. We might wonder if this once-promising kingdom is going to come crashing down altogether. But we should recall the words of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. In verses 14 to 16, we read, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Your throne will be established forever. God knew it was coming. God said in the covenant with David, I know this is coming. If David was paying attention to those words, he would have thought, wait, when I sin, he's going to discipline me, but his promise is not going to depart am i going to sin in some major way yes he will but david's sin will not undo god's purposes or his promises and yet there's no escaping the fact that there's that there these are some of the darkest chapters in the bible in these chapters david spirals into sin and deception and when he's confronted he confesses and he receives forgiveness but not without severe consequences now let this sink in dear ones This is David. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the hoped for and anticipated king of Israel. This is the giant slayer. This is the sweet shepherd of God's people and author of so many beautiful psalms who had refused so many times to take matters into his own hands, to whom God made all those incredible promises in 2 Samuel 7. This David, this David, has taken one of his younger captain's wives and slept with her and then had that loyal colleague and his company of soldiers murdered all to cover it up. David begins chapter 11 getting some fresh air. While basking in the afterglow of success, a dozen verses later, he commits adultery and murder. How does this happen? We should want to know for fear that it might happen to us. How does it happen? And how can it all be avoided? This morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 11. We're going to see four steps to David's ruin. And then in chapter 12, we're going to see four steps to his rescue. Four steps to his ruin, four steps to his rescue. David's ruin, first of all. How does David begin this descent into sin? First of all, avoiding our responsibilities. Avoiding our responsibilities. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. We're being set up here in the story. The writer says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, are you a king? Yes. Why are you not at battle? Because I want to stay in Jerusalem. Avoiding his responsibility as a king to lead his men in battle. Joab's competent. He can take care of it. I'm going to hang back here. For maybe the first time in his life, David isn't leading God's people into battle. He's sending a proxy and he's staying at home. He's getting up off the couch, but not to go into battle, but to go out onto his ledge. The path into sin, brothers and sisters, often begins in really innocuous and simple ways. It just begins by not, not doing what we ought to be doing. Rather than doing What we ought to do, we're not doing anything. It's not that we're not doing what we're not supposed to be doing. It's that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. say it differently, the path into sin often begins by not doing what we ought to be doing rather than doing something we ought not to do. In other words, it begins passively. It begins through omission, not commission. It begins by neglecting the responsibilities that God has placed in our lives. We put ourselves in danger when we begin to disengage from those legitimate responsibilities. When we're disengaged from the battle that God has for us to be in, that's when we're most susceptible to the temptations of the flesh. Listen, everything I say today applies to both genders, but let me talk for a moment specifically to our men and our young men. Brothers... You were created by God to sacrificially lead, to fight, to serve, to protect. And when we're not doing that, that's when these God-given energies look for a different outlet. And quite often that outlet is the intoxication of illicit sex. When you're disengaged from your role in the spiritual battle, the excitement of sex promises a fulfillment, a momentary distraction, an adventure that you desperately crave. David was meant to get that adventure on the battlefield. And he sacrificed that adventure for the adventure of the bedroom. For many of us, it's not that your desire for sex is so strong, it's that your activity for Christ is so weak. It's not that you have uncontrollable lusts. It's that you're idle. And you have not stepped into the life that God has called you to live. Don't blame it on your sex drive. Blame it on your lack of life ambition. For the things of God, for the kingdom of God, for the battles that God has called you to wage. I can tell you from personal experience that the attractions of illicit sex lose a lot of their power, not all their power, but a lot of it, when we are actively engaged in the spiritual realm, battling in the power of the Spirit for our church, for our family, for our co-workers, actively engaged in the mission of God. That is the key, dear ones. David was not actively engaged in God's mission. He was avoiding his responsibilities, and that, that's where his ruin began. Is that where your ruin is beginning? Secondly, not only by avoiding our responsibilities, but by nursing our entitlement. Nursing our entitlement. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, instead of looking away from Bathsheba, David lingered. He saw, he considered... And then he longed for what he saw. That's always the path into sin, isn't it? As it was at the beginning. It was in the garden. It's a repetition of the age-old pattern that we see with Eve and Adam. They saw, they wanted, they took. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Genesis 3.6, and that it was a delight for the eyes, so that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, this isn't just a man thing. This is a female thing. This is a human thing. We look, we desire, and we take. That's how sin works. In David's case, in 2 Samuel 11, or in Eve's case, in Genesis 3. David, at some level, had forgotten God's grace to him, and he felt entitled. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want you to look how Nathan, the prophet, rebukes David on the back end of this sin because this gives us some insight into what was in David's mind as he was committing it. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and look at verse 7. After telling this story, this parable to David, Nathan says, You're the man. of the ammonites This was also in Bathsheba's husband Uriah's thinking look back at 2nd Samuel 11 David in order to try to cover up his sin tries to bring Uriah home Bathsheba's husband and get Uriah to sleep with her but notice what Uriah says to David in verse 11 Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my life as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Behold, a righteous man. Behold, the opposite of what David was doing. Uriah says, How can I sleep with my wife? God's people are on the field. I got a job to do first. David's like, I had a job to do and I didn't. So what was it that kept Joseph, remember, from sinning with Potiphar's wife? We read in Genesis 39, 6-10, the very thing that Nathan and Uriah were embodying. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, or to be with her. What was the key to Joseph resisting the temptation of Potiphar's wife? He did not in any sense feel entitled. He didn't feel entitled. Uriah didn't feel entitled. Nathan was calling out David's entitlement. You think you deserve this. Do you not realize how much God has given you? It's like what the serpent does in the garden, right? He comes in and he says, Has God forbidden you to eat from every tree? Trying to paint God as a stingy God, one who's not generous. And yet, the truth is, one tree has he forbidden you to eat. All the trees of the garden you may eat from except one. See, that's our God. He gives us plenty. He gives us bounty. And then he says, Don't do that one thing. Dear ones, when we nurse our entitlement, when we think God's given us a raw deal, when we're not thankful, when we're not aware of all his blessings in our life, we are sitting ducks for ruin. We'll we'll grasp for what is forbidden because we forget the garden of blessing in which we live. God has surrounded me with a church family and blessings of salvation and jobs and shelter and food and provision and abundant forgiveness and grace and his presence in my life and we deserve nothing and God has given us so much in Christ and being conscious of all that we have deserved and being continually grateful for all we've received is a great antidote to sin for we focus on the many trees that God has given us without fixating on the one that he has forbidden Let us beware, dear ones, of nursing our entitlements and thinking more on what we don't have than what we do have. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. It's not just a good thing to do, it'll help you from ruining your life. Number three, objectifying our neighbors. Objectifying our neighbors. David begins by avoiding his responsibility. He begins to nurse his entitlement, and then he begins to objectify his neighbor. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Notice this one is specifically saying who this woman is. She's got a name. She's got a marriage. She's got a father. All those things are not in David's mind. For we read in verse 4, So, David sent messengers and took her. Not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Not the daughter of Eliam. Her. Just a her. She's a body. She doesn't have any relationships. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a father. She doesn't have an identity. She's a her. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5, and the woman conceived. See, that's what she is to David. She's a woman. She's a her. And she sent and said, David, I'm pregnant. David gets a name. But from the lips of David, Bathsheba gets no name. It appears from the text that David didn't think of Bathsheba as a person. He thought of her as an object for his pleasure. The author mentions this subtly. In verses 3 and 4, David sent and inquired about the woman Verse 5, the woman conceived. But in between, as I pointed out, we get this little detail in verse 4. Is not this Bathsheba? Is not this the daughter of Eliam? Is not this the wife of Uriah the Hittite? She has a name. She is someone's daughter. She is someone's wife. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. Not only a neighbor, but a trusted warrior. A well-known friend of David. Bathsheba was the daughter of another of David's mighty men. According to 2 Samuel 23, 34, Eliam was one of them. Even more egregious. He's sinning against two of his loyal soldiers. Bathsheba's father is one that works for him in his military. And so is Uriah, her husband. The messenger relays that information to David hoping that it will some way stop him from what this messenger perceives he's going to do. Why would he ask about a woman who's bathing on a roof if he doesn't intend to do something? David just sees a woman. Here's a person who is loved and who loves others far beyond the beauty of her body, but David doesn't think about that. She's just an object to him to satisfy his lusts. This is what happens with sexual sin. We forget that we're dealing with someone's life here, usually multiple people's lives. This person is someone's daughter, someone's mother, someone's wife or future wife. This man you're messing around with is some little girl's daddy. One resource I came across in preparation for this sermon mentioned this word of counsel, quote, When you notice an attractive woman, look at her face, and notice if she looks tired. If she's carrying packages, consider who she might be carrying them for and think, I bet she's a great mom. Make her a person and give her a life. Ask yourself, I wonder if she knows Jesus and pray for her. Giving her a spirit will often dispel the temptation. End quote. See, this is exactly the opposite of what our pornified culture does with men and women. It objectifies people. One of the things that will keep you away from pornography is realizing that the person on the other side of that camera is a real person. They were once a little girl or a little boy with all kinds of dreams that did not include being looked at like this. She was probably sex trafficked and somewhere attached to that girl as a broken hearted father and mother and probably to the man as well. Don't miss that this sin of David begins with a version of of Israel pornography. David's gazing at her, objectification of her, which led to the consumption of her as an object. Psychologists tell us that pornography trains your heart and your mind to objectify the opposite sex. It literally rewires your brain to dishuman the person, to make them inhumane. One one writer says, quote, Viewing image after image causes the brain to mold in such a way that eventually establishes that sexual pattern as normal. Pornography damages our ability to bond in a committed relationship. End quote. Listen. If you have pornography in your life for the sake of your relationships, get rid of it. Fight against it. If you have a wife or a future wife or a husband or a future husband, you need to get rid of that today. And if you're dating someone seriously or you're engaged you're not, and you're not willing to address this in your life, then you owe it to your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your fiancé to, to tell them that you're bringing this into the relationship. They deserve to know. Give them the option to opt out now before it comes out later and their heart is broken. Fourthly, covering our tracks. Covering our tracks. We might call it today deleting our internet history. Read 11, Let's look at verses 5 and 6 as David covers in the wake of his sin. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So Bathsheba's pregnant. The first thing David does is try to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. Now, it's still early in the pregnancy, so he may not realize she's pregnant. Might think it's his child later on. Notice verses 8 and 9. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism for sleep with your wife. And Uriah went out, and the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now this is interesting. I want you to look back at 1 Samuel chapter 21. At the end of 1 Samuel. Notice what David says to his soldiers regarding the conduct that they are to have in battle. 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 4 and 5. 1 Samuel 21 4 and 5. David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Look at verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread. And if the young women have kept themselves from women. So this is, again, David being offered the showbread of the priest in the tabernacle, and he's eating it. But notice the condition. The priest says... Have these soldiers kept themselves from women? Have they slept with anybody recently? And then David says, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. But not when you don't, right David? When when you're not on an expedition, you can do it. So David, Uriah is just doing what David taught him to do. I'm on an expedition, I'm not going home to sleep with my wife. We're still at war, David. Which makes all this the more sad, doesn't it? I mean, we should read 2 Samuel and just say, oh, David, oh, David, oh, David, why, why, no, don't do this. See, David had prohibited sexual relations during battles or missions from the king. During those times, so that he could carry out God's will, in those days, battles were considered religious. And this is why Uriah refuses to go to his wife when he answers David's, Summons. So, being that Uriah is a righteous man, David has to come up with another way to cover his tracks. So, he decides to get Uriah drunk in hopes of luring and lowering his inhibitions and his resolve. Notice verses 12 and 13. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. It's interesting. He places the blame for Uriah's drunkenness on David, not on Uriah. It's interesting. David is the one who keeps shoveling drinks in his face. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David's cover-up foiled again. This is God's mercy to David. Strange as it is, this is God's mercy to David. But you notice, Uriah shows more restraint when drunk than David does sober. For the sake of the men's mission to show solidarity with them, Uriah still, even in his drunken state, refuses to go down to his house. And so when that doesn't work, David arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle and for Bathsheba to be brought into his harem. And that's what happens as 2 Samuel 11 plays out. So that's the first half of our sermon. David steps into ruin, avoiding his responsibilities, nursing his entitlements, objectifying his neighbors, and then finally covering his tracks. But that's not the only thing that's going on in this chapter. There's ruin going on, yes, but there's also rescue going on. So let's turn to the rescue now in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see David's path towards repentance how he was led out of his sin. And next week, Lord willing, we'll consider that in some detail when we look at Psalm 51, the psalm David wrote about this very incident. His first step to rescue is is confronting our reality. It's confronting our reality. What I mean is something brings your sin before your face. For David, it was Nathan, the prophet. For you, it might happen in a rebuke from a friend or a parent or a teacher, or a boss, or through a message you hear at church, or perhaps even just the Holy Spirit working in your conscience. But in David's case, it happens through a prophet named Nathan. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Oh, praise the Lord for that. Not giving up on David. David, you're a sheep who's wandering. I'm going to go get you. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Nathan's going to tell him a story now. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Poor man with a sweet little sheep. Verse 4. You're the man. You're the rich man who has taken your poor servants, you lamb. Notice how Nathan views this woman. Way different than the way David views her. As a vulnerable woman who was in need of care and protection. And Uriah, who was a loyal friend to David. Dear ones, we will get nowhere until we're honest. The narrator is unequivocal in blaming David for this situation. We read in verse 27 of chapter 11, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The prophet is unequivocal in blaming David. The narrator is unequivocal in blaming David. Bathsheba is never chastised. To pin the blame equally on Bathsheba is to ignore how God assesses this story entirely. Nathan blames David. God blames David. Notice how Nathan describes the boldness of David's sin in verse 7. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. Verse 8, I gave you your master's house. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? The same man who had been so unscrupulous to honor the Lord when it was Saul now acts as though he's in a category all by himself, as though the Lord's commands do not apply to the Lord's anointed. David thinks he has all the power, all the authority. It reminds me of another king of Israel who spent all his royal energy chasing a successful commander from his own army all throughout the wilderness. What has happened to David that he's become so much like Saul? Chasing his loyal people to kill them. You see what's happening in the story? David has become Saul. He's chasing his loyal commander to kill him. Is that not what Saul was doing with David? Sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay, won't it? It'll turn you into your enemy. You will become the very thing you hate. I had never considered the way the narrator is painting David to be like Saul, irrationally seeking the life of his faithful military commander. That makes this rebuke all the more scathing and shocking. The most shocking part of the story comes after the murder of Uriah when David tells his commander, Let this matter not be evil in your eyes. Look at Second Samuel eleven twenty-five. Verse 25 of chapter 11. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack and against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Literally, it says, Let not this matter be evil to you. David is redefining his egregious behavior as acceptable, as legitimate. Nathan the prophet uses the same phrase, making it absolutely clear that what David has done is evil in God's sight, which is the only opinion that ultimately matters. We read this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Same phrase. The same, very same phrase that David used in chapter 11 to excuse his sin is the very phrase in chapter 12 that Nathan says, no, no, David, don't excuse this. This is... You were wrong. This was evil. Don't try to redefine it. Confront your reality. Set, call it what it is. This is evil, david e E-vil. E-V-I-L. Don't pass it off as, oh, this was an affair. This was evil. Evil. Satanic, David. Don't pass it off with the way that our culture kind of cloaks the language of sin in different language. Don't use therapeutic categories here, David. This is evil. Don't try to change it. So confronting our reality is important here. And David having a faithful prophet to do so is huge. And as prophet, David had, Nathan had a unique responsibility to confront David's sin. That's why he's there. The king has a prophet so that the prophet will tell the king God's word. That said, confrontation of sin should not be a completely foreign concept to New Testament believers, should it? Especially in the context of this local church, where we've been called to confront gently but firmly when we see a brother or sister go astray. Matthew 7, Matthew 18, Galatians 6, 2 Timothy 2, James 5. The texts are numerous. We've been called to receive correction when needed, It's not easy to do that, not easy to give and receive correction, but this is part of God's plan for our spiritual safety and for our sanctification. We're not prophets like Nathan, but we do have a prophetic ministry, lowercase p, in one another's lives to speak God's word to one another. And this is a reminder of how important we are to each other in this ministry to help each other. How often are we to do this? as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't take that that seriously, do we? We don't. I don't. I need the word of Hebrews to land on me again and say, this is an everyday thing. It's an everyday thing. It's a regular, ongoing thing because we are tempted in our sin to deny reality, and we need God's word to come and confront us with it again. Secondly, Second step to rescue, not only confronting reality, but acknowledging our guilt. Acknowledging our guilt. That is agreeing with God that the testimony that he gives is the right one. And David does this, Praise the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, we read, David said to Nathan, these are some of the best words David has ever said, I have sinned against the Lord. Just call it what it is. Own it. I have sinned against the Lord. Now we'll consider this in more detail as we look at Psalm 51 next week, but for now, notice this. Nathan's rebuke lands squarely on David. David knows he's in the wrong, and his response is two words in Hebrew no defense, no equivocation. He's caught, he doesn't deny it, he owns it. I can imagine the responses that David might have given. She was naked. What do you expect me to do? Uriah should have gone home. I gave him multiple opportunities. Then he wouldn't have been killed. I never would have killed him. But the Ammonites killed him, not me. I didn't do it. David offers none of these excuses. With every failure, he acknowledges his sin. And dear ones, when, with every one of our sin too, we stand at a crossword, crossroads. We can hedge and we can whine and we can deflect and we can give excuses, we can shift the blame, or we can get healed. We can take responsibility, we can repent, and we can create a better future. That's the crossroads. And praise the Lord, David owned it in the moment. I have sinned against the Lord. Some of the best words we can ever say in private and public. I have sinned against the Lord. Thirdly, receiving our consequences. Receiving our consequences. David's sin is going to bring significant consequences into his life. Now, as the Lord's anointed, because his authority is higher, his responsibility is greater, and his consequences are more widespread. No doubt about it. He's the anointed king of Israel. When he sins, it affects so much more than our sin affects. But our sin does affect us. And David's sin does have consequences as well. Just look, first of all, we're just going to read a couple of verses here. Nathan tells him in verse 13 of chapter 12 some of what these consequences will be. David said, where Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. We'll come back to that in a moment. Nevertheless, because by this deed, verse 14, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So Bathsheba's pregnant, that child will die, and we read about that at the beginning of the sermon. But also, remember what Samuel, or Nathan says in verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David, you're not only going to have the consequence of your child dying, civil war is going to be the case for your family from here on out. You will never know peace in your family again. And he doesn't. David shatters, or Nathan shatters David's reality with a new reality. The peace and stability that David has enjoyed in his kingdom, that he spent a lifetime establishing, is going to be torn apart by two civil wars. First of all, in verse 11 and 12, Nathan says, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. The shameful sexual sin and murderous violence in which David engaged secretly is practiced openly by his sons, Amnon and Absalom, which we will see as we make our way through the rest of 2 Samuel. And the baby conceived by David's sin died seven days after he was born. Now, this is an important lesson, even for those whose sexual sin may not be in the same category as David, or any sin for that matter. Our sin affects everyone around us. I read an article this week where a man listed out all the things that would happen if he committed adultery. And so I decided to make it my own list. Here's what I wrote If I commit adultery, I will cause untold hurt to Katie. I would have to endure the loss of her respect and trust and might forever forfeit my marriage with her. I would cause deep hurt and confusion in my children who may never understand why I traded a close relationship with them for a thrill. Yes, I could likely stay involved in their lives, but my relationship with them would never be the same. I would bring endless judgment on the woman I committed adultery with. Her life would be forever labeled by this encounter. If she had kids, I would be the biggest stumbling block for them learning to trust in Jesus. I would confuse and discourage many in their walk of faith. I would cause shame to my church family. I would give another reason for the enemies of God to blaspheme and mock Christianity and say it's phony and untrue. I would follow in the footsteps of hundreds of other pastors who immorally forfeited their ministry and stained the name of the church. Most importantly, I would grieve my Jesus, and one day I will have to look him in the face and explain why after all he had given to me, after all the blessing and all the beauty he had put into my life, I had to have something else. Dear ones, if that won't stop us, what will? Any sin. Is this not what we sang this morning? How can I betray the ones whom you have loved? We sang in Beneath the Cross of Jesus, the ones for for whom you have died. Let this keep you. I don't want to give my brothers or sisters in this congregation another reason to not trust in Christ. I do not want to cause them to stumble because of me. That should hold us, shouldn't it? but sin has a way of making us selfish doesn't it we don't think about those things but we should think about those things and bring those things in as ammunition for the fight now we're going to get to forgiveness glorious forgiveness in just a moment but that don't let that water down the impact of this point you can always get forgiveness for sin you can't unsin sins consequences Meaning, your life, even after forgiven, leaves waves of destruction that can last a lifetime and, according to the Bible, even several generations to clean up, depending on the severity of it and the ongoing nature of it and the degree to which it was repented of. But, fourthly and finally, let's conclude on this point enjoying our forgiveness. Enjoying our forgiveness. Here's the key phrase in verse 13. Nathan says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Reminds you of Adam and Eve in the garden? The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Not in this moment. After seeing David repent, Nathan assures David that God has not taken his love from him. David will not die. He hasn't been canceled. God still has a plan for him. Nathan tells David, God's not done with you, David. Nathan assured him that God still had a lot of good things left for him, plans to use him for good. His life is not over. Listen, dear ones, if you're not dead, God's not done. Okay? Ever, 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 ever. If we're not dead, God's not done. Now, how can we be forgiven? How can Uriah say such a thing as this, or Nathan say such a thing as this? to David, just wiping it out. It almost, it almost strikes us as you're, that Nathan is kind of minimizing it, doesn't he? Like, he's, cost, he's costing Bathsheba a daughter, cost your, her husband's life, Uriah lost his life, and yet, the Lord put away your sin, you won't die. Don't worry about it, David, it's no big deal. Well, that's not, what, that's not the way Nathan is saying it. I want you to think about how we can be forgiven, that's illustrated in these very chapters. Think about Uriah for a minute, Bathsheba's husband. Who was he? An innocent and loyal and selfless selfless soldier for the Lord. Uriah was loyal to David to the very end. He can't bring himself to enjoy a way. And when Uriah was placed on the front lines of the fiercest battle and told to charge into the face of death, he did it without hesitating or complaining. And in the end, he dies. Not because of his own sin, but because of David's. That remind you of anybody? That reminds you of anybody, church? That reminds me of Jesus. Uriah smells a lot like Jesus to me. Willing to embrace the sin of another, go right into the heart of the battle, lay his life down for sin that he didn't do. And that's our Jesus. And that's why David can be forgiven. Jesus was the true mighty man. The true one who was loyal to the end, who refused to partake of pleasure when he was in harm's way. I thirst. Get it out of my mouth. I will not call down the legion of angels to save me from the cross. Nevertheless, he said in the garden of Gethsemane, not what I will, but what you will be done. He's forsaking all of that, rushing into the battle on our behalf, even when it was certain that he would die. And in the end, he died like Uriah, not for his own sins, but for our sins. King David remained at home instead of going to battle. Christ willingly left his heavenly home to fight the battle against sin and to win that battle on the cross and in an empty tomb. King David took someone's life in order to cover up his sin. Christ willingly laid down his life to forgive ours. King David took a bride which was not rightfully his, but through living a holy and blameless life and by shedding his blood and rising from the dead, Jesus purchased a bride for his own possession. We, a holy bride, composed of people from all tribes and all tongues and all peoples and all nations. A bride composed of people like me and people like you. God put the story of King David and Bathsheba in the Bible as a warning against the destructive tendencies of sin, but much, much more so, he put it as a foreshadowing of the freedom that Christ would one day win for his people. Christian, may the story of King David and Bathsheba prompt you to, yes, be on guard against that which would lead you to ruin, but more than that, to rejoice in the one who loved you in a way far more loyal than even Uriah did for David, and even Uriah did for Bathsheba. Laying his life down in sacrificial love for us, that and that alone will keep us on the narrow way that leads to life. The love of Christ constrains us. And this is what David's singing now, and will be singing for all eternity, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's David's word for us. Don't let this message of my life end in sadness. Let it end in rejoicing, shouts of joy, because our God is a God who forgives the worst of sinners, including David and including us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's sobering, but it's also a cause for great celebration and joy. Lord, as every text teaches us, there is a Sin to avoid, but there's also a great promise to believe. Yes, this text is sobering in terms of its exposure of our hearts and the way in which our sin tries to wage war against our souls. But thanks be to God who is able to deliver us from this body of death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our greater Uriah, for being the one who came and would not forsake the battle. For pleasure, but went into the heart of the battle and died in our place for our sin. Not for sin that you had committed, but for sin that we had committed. Thank you that embedded in the very heart of this narrative is a, f- a foretaste of the gospel to come, a foretaste of the Jesus who would come and lay his life down. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though we suffer, some of us at various levels, temporal consequences for our sin, we will suffer zero (laughs) eternal consequences. Zero. We will say with David, the Lord has done all things well. (laughs) Blessed is the man who does not, against whom the Lord counts no sin and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Shout for joy, all you righteous. Thank you that it always ends in joy because your grace is greater than our sin. We praise your name in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, brothers and sisters.